Bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratty. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. He doesn't have a bipartisan bill. Nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Nefogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, March 10th, 2015. In our general news section today, I'll talk about the federal debt ceiling and why Treasury Secretary Jacob Liu is urging Congress to raise the debt limit as soon as possible. Then, I'll discuss updated consolidation guidance from the Financial Accounting Standards Board. I'll also share information about a new bill that was introduced to promote public-private partnerships in social enterprises. In our affordable housing section, I have news that many of us have been waiting for. HUD finally released its fiscal year 2015 income limits. Then, I'll detail a new proposal package in California that would increase the state's low-income housing tax credit cap by $300 million a year. In new market tax credit news, I'll share info on a Senate bill that was introduced to make the new market tax credit a permanent part of the tax code. Then, switching gears, I'll let you know how you can comment on the CDFI Fund's proposed annual assessment for the CDFI Bond Guarantee Program. I'll also talk about why it's not too late to send in your nomination for the Novogratz Journal of Tax Credits Community Development Individual Achievement Awards. Then, in Historic Tax Credit News, I'll discuss the National Park Service's annual report on the Federal Historic Tax Credit. And in state-level news, I'll talk about a chance for California to have its own historic tax credit program. Finally, we'll close out this week's podcast with our renewable energy tax credit segment. I'll talk about a budget proposal in Louisiana that could scale back several of the state's tax credit programs, including its wind and solar tax credit. And we'll close out the podcast with some good news about how North Carolina's renewable energy investment tax credit is proving to be a sound investment. If you're ready, let's get started. I'll start this week's general news section with a brief reminder about an important date coming up next week. Under current law, the Treasury will reach its statutory borrowing limit this coming Monday, March 16th. The amount of outstanding debt subject to the limit is now about $18.1 trillion. That's about twice the outstanding debt subject to the limit at the end of fiscal year 2007. Now, I should note that the $18.1 trillion level includes $13 trillion in debt held by the public. What's the difference? Well, there's about $5.1 trillion in intragovernmental holdings. That's essentially the federal government borrowing from itself. And it's made up of borrowings from the Social Security Trust Fund and other governmental accounts. But let's turn back to the nominal debt limit. There is currently no statutory limit on the issuance of new federal debt, and that's because in February of 2014, Congress suspended the debt ceiling through March 15, 2015, and that's this Sunday. So if Congress doesn't take action by next week, and it's not expected to, the federal government will need to use what are referred to as extraordinary measures to avoid breaching the debt ceiling. The Congressional Budget Office estimates that those measures would likely be exhausted by October or November of this year, so there is a bit of running room between now and then. 
Congress would then have to raise the government's borrowing authority. If Congress fails to increase the debt limit, the government would default on its U.S. obligations. That would lead to delays of payments for government activities, a default in government's debt obligations, or both. Treasury Secretary Jacob Liu wrote Congress earlier this month asking it to raise the debt limit as soon as possible. I'll keep you updated on any developments. You can follow me on Twitter at Novogratik. Next, I'd like to talk about a subject that I mentioned in prior podcasts. It's an update from the Financial Accounting Standards Board, or FASB, on its guidance on consolidation. That is, when a group of entities must report their activities on a consolidated basis. In the update, FASB eliminated an exemption from applying consolidation guidance that was in existing rules related to certain entities. The new guidance, though, mainly targets asset managers, but it does apply to all reporting entities. And changes were made that do affect partnerships, limited liability companies, and nonprofit organizations with tax credit investments and properties. So how will this new guidance affect the tax credit community? Well, I don't expect it's going to change current practice much. However, the new standard will require entities to evaluate fees for service arrangements and the effect of certain related parties differently in their consolidation analysis. Now, under the voting model approach to determine consolidation, ownership of a majority voting interest is the usual condition for controlling financial interest. However, for limited partnerships, a limited partner must have substantive kickout rights in order to be considered to have control. If you want to learn more about how this new guidance could affect your partnership, please contact my partner, Bentley Stanton, in our Atlanta metro office at 678-867-2333. You can also feel free to send your question via email to cpas at novaco.com. I'd also like to discuss a new bill that was introduced to create a federal fund for promoting social impact partnerships or pay-for-success contracts. In general, social impact partnerships entail a private investor providing upfront capital for a social program. The government then pays back the investor only if prescribed social outcomes are accomplished. If this bill passes, the federal government would request proposals from states or local governments for social impact partnership projects. The bill sets aside $300 million for payment to states for demonstrating that they achieved the program's targeted outcomes. Supporters of the bill say it would incentivize more efficient use of government resources and that it would attract private capital to social enterprises. The Social Impact Partnerships Act, or H.R. 1336, was introduced by Representatives Todd Young, a Republican from Indiana, and John Delaney, a Democrat from Maryland. Among its supporters is one notable House Ways and Means Committee member, namely its chairman, Paul Ryan. He praised the bill for supporting evidence-based policy. A copy of the Social Impact Partnerships Act, or H.R. 1336, is available at www.newmarketscredits.com. And for additional information, contact Peter Lawrence in our Washington, D.C. office. Next, let's turn to low-income housing tax credit news. The Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD, last week finally released its income limits for fiscal year 2015. Next week, I'm going to be able to provide you more detailed analysis of trends and highlights in this year's income limits. But in the meantime, I did want to share some key information about the release of this information and its implementation. Now, these income limits 
are the basis for determining rents and qualifying maximum income levels for tenants and low-income housing tax credit properties. As such, the national and local area trends are very important to the long-term sustainability of low-income housing tax credit properties. Now, these income limits are also used to determine eligibility for HUD's assisted housing programs that include public housing, Section 8, Section 202, and Section 811. The release of the income limits was delayed this year, and they were, instead of being released in December, HUD had to delay the release until now. And that release delay was related to the change in the definition of extremely low-income households, which, which is primarily used for setting admissions targets for the Housing Choice Voucher Program. It was a change that was made in the 2014 Consolidated Appropriations Act. And under that change, extremely low-income household is now defined as the higher of the Department of Health and Human Services poverty guidelines, or 30% of area median income. And because of that, HUD's income limits couldn't be released until the Department of Health and Human Services 2015 poverty guidelines were published. Now, these guidelines also include what are referred to as the Multifamily Tax Subsidy Projects Income Limits, or the MTSP Income Limits. They were consequently delayed as well. Now, these are the specific limits, based upon AMI and other numbers, that determine qualification levels and maximum rental rates for local housing tax credit properties, as well as properties financed with Section 142 tax-exempt housing bonds. They rely on Section 8 limits and how they're calculated, and because of that, as I mentioned earlier, they were released at the same time as these other HUD guidelines. Now, the 2015 income limits are effective as of March 6th, which is the date they were published. And as I also said earlier, we'll have more details on the impact of the changes in next week's podcast. But there are some high-level trends I'd like to share with you. And these trends are overall good news. Income limits, or incomes more broadly, are on the rebound. However, there are still many areas where the income limits have not increased above the prior high-water mark. So what do we know? Area median income levels saw an average increase across geographic areas of nearly 3%, namely 2.95%. Furthermore, 80% of areas, geographic areas, did see an increase. Now, this rise in area median gross income translates into the 50% VLI, or very low income, levels rising as well. They rose an average of 2.59%, with an average increase of 83, or I should say an increase in 83% of geographic areas. Now lastly, the MTSP 50% income levels rose, but not as fast a pace. They averaged a 1.71% increase, and 58% of areas had an increase. Now why did these uh, levels not rise quite as rapidly? Well, this level that I just referenced is for those areas that have been previously held harmless or, or referred to as Harris Special Areas, and they experience lower average growth because they have been held harmless in prior years and need to essentially grow at a rate to rise above the prior hold harmless floor levels. Novogratz and Company is updating its rent and income limit calculator to include this 2015 data, and if you're a subscriber to Novogratz and Company's free industry alert email service, then you'll get an email announcement when this update's been completed. If you want to subscribe to this free service, go to www.taxcredithousing.com and hover over the News tab. From there, click on Industry Alerts. I also encourage you or someone on your staff to register for our upcoming webinar to learn more about the new limits 
and how to use them. The webinar is entitled, The 2015 HUD Rent and Income Limits and Your Tax Credit Property Webinar, and we'll host the webinar next Tuesday, March 17th. To sign up, go to www.novaco.com and click on the Events tab and then on the Webinar tab. And if you have any questions in the meantime, please contact my partner, Thomas Stagg, and our Seattle Metro office at 425-453-5783 or send an email to cpas at novaco.com. As I promised last week, I have more details for you on an affordable housing package introduced in California by Assembly Speaker Tony Atkins and colleagues. The plan includes four bills designed to increase and improve the state's affordable housing stock. One bill, AB 35, would increase California's state local housing tax credit by $300 million a year on top of its current $70 million program cap. I should note that AB 35 was originally introduced in December 2014, and as originally introduced, the bill proposed creating a $40 million state tax credit to serve very low-income, extremely low-income, same-room occupancy, and rural households. When the bill was amended earlier this month, that proposal was replaced with the provision I mentioned earlier that would expand the state local housing tax credit cap to $370 million. The second bill in the package, AB 1335, would establish a permanent source of funding for affordable housing by placing a $75 fee on real estate transaction documents, excluding home sales. This fee is expected to generate $300 million to $700 million annually that would be used to fund affordable rental housing and other housing-related programs. The third bill, AB 90, would create a framework for how California will spend any funds received from the National Housing Trust Fund that are expected to begin flowing to states in the year 2016. And the fourth bill, AB 1056 deals with housing support for people who were formerly incarcerated. Supporters of the legislative package expect it to be a major economic driver for the state. According to the Speaker's office, an estimated 29,000 jobs would be created annually for every $500 million spent on affordable housing. To read the proposal package, go to www.taxcredithousing.com. And for questions, send an email to cpas at novaco.com. In New Markets Tax Credit news, legislation to permanently extend the federal New Markets Tax Credit was introduced in the Senate last month. It was introduced by Senator Roy Blunt, a Republican from Missouri. And its original co-sponsors were Democrats Chuck Schumer of New York and Ben Cardin of Maryland, as well as Republican Steve Daines of Montana. Senator Blunt introduced his bill a little more than two weeks after nearly identical legislation was introduced in the House of Representatives by Representative Pat Tiberi of Ohio. Tiberi's bill, I should note, now has 26 co-sponsors. Both the House and Senate bills would make the new market tax credit permanent. As most listeners know, the new market tax credit program is currently authorized only through the current allocation round. The legislation would also set an annual inflation adjustment for the allocation amount. As you know, the allocation amount for the 2014 round is $3.5 billion, but Novogratz and Company estimates that if the bill passes in 2015, there would be about $4.8 billion in allocation authority available. Furthermore, the new bill would allow the new market tax credit to be claimed against the alternative minimum tax, or AMT. House Bill H.R. 855 is posted on www.newmarketscredits.com, and the Senate Bill S591 will be posted there as soon as the text is available. If you have any questions, contact my partner, Owen Gray, in our San Francisco office at 415-356-8000. And in other news, the Community Development Financial Institutions Fund, or CDFI Fund, 
announced in a notice last week that it's inviting public comment on a proposed annual assessment for the CDFI bond guarantee program. The proposed reporting form would evaluate the performance of eligible CDFIs participating in the bond guarantee program. It also applies to qualified issuers that have issued bonds under the program in fiscal year 2015 or later. The assessment would examine criteria such as the participant's financial strength, portfolio management and servicing capability, and more. Written comments are due May 4th, and the Federal Register notice and proposed assessment form are posted at www.newmarketscredits.com. Before we move on to our next section, I'd like to announce or remind that the nomination deadline for the Novograd Journal of Tax Credits Community Development Individual Achievement Awards has been extended to Thursday, April 9th. These awards recognize public officials or executives who have positively affected the New Market Tax Credit Program and advanced community development policy and legislation. Winners will be honored at the Novograd New Market Tax Credit Conference on June 11th in Washington, D.C. I'd like to point out that highlighting the good work of community development advocates can be an effective tool for promoting the whole New Market Tax Credit Program. So I encourage you to consider nominating an individual who deserves recognition. It could be a colleague or somebody you've worked with on a previous transaction, or perhaps a federal or state lawmaker that you know is a strong supporter of the New Markets Tax Credit. You can go to www.novaco.com awards for more information and to download nomination materials. In historic tax credit news, the National Park Service recently released its annual report on the Federal Historic Tax Credit Program's accomplishments in 2014. It found that more than 1,100 proposed projects and nearly $6 billion in qualified expenses were approved last year. Furthermore, 762 completed projects worth $4.32 billion in rehabilitation work were certified. These completed projects created nearly 78,000 jobs. The National Park Service reports that on the housing front, nearly 20,000 units were constructed or renovated using this direct tax credit, and that includes more than 6,500 new low- and moderate-income housing units. A supplemental report found that last year, more than 50% of the projects receiving Part 3 certifications for the federal credit also used state historic tax credits. This is up from 40% in 2013. The report's findings for 2014 add to the program's already impressive resume. Since its inception in 1976, the Federal Historic Tax Credit Program has been used in more than 40,000 completed projects, generating more than $73 billion in investments. To read more about the National Park Service reports, go to www.historictaxcredits.com or contact Tom Bosha in our Cleveland, Ohio office. In state historic tax credit news, I have another exciting update from California. California Assembly Speaker Tony Atkins introduced a bill last month to create a California historic tax credit program. The bill would authorize $50 million a year in state historic tax credits, and this includes a $10 million set aside for developments that have less than $1 million in qualified rehabilitation expenditures. The credits would be allocated from January 1, 2016 to January 1, 2024, and the program would provide a credit equal to 20% of qualified expenditures. That being said, the credit could increase to 25% if certain criteria are met. The larger credit percentage or higher credit percentage would be available if the rehabilitated structure met one of the following criteria. Located in a federal surplus property or in a designated census tract, being part of a military-based reuse authority, being associated with a transit-oriented development, 
or includes affordable housing for low-income households. This bill is nearly identical to AB 1999, which Representative Adkins introduced last year. That bill, you'll probably recall, was passed by the Senate and Assembly, but, unfortunately, was vetoed by Governor Jerry Brown last September 2014. In his veto message, the governor said he supported the bill's goals, but said its cost should be weighed against other budget priorities. So it'll be up to preservation advocates to demonstrate how the benefits of a state historic tax credit program would outweigh its cost. Continued advocacy may influence the governor's opinion of the proposed program if the bill reaches his desk again this legislative session. To find the text of the current bill, AB 771, go to www.historictaxcredits.com. In renewable energy tax credit news, Louisiana Governor Bobby Jindal proposed a budget for fiscal 2015-16 that slashes the state's tax credit programs, including a credit for wind and solar installations. Governor Jindal's budget cuts $526 million in tax credit programs, nearly one-third of the state's $1.6 billion shortfall. To be precise, the governor's proposed cuts eliminate the refundable portion of 12 tax credits. They don't eliminate the credit, just the ability of the taxpayer to receive more in credit than their tax liability in a given year. That's significant because what makes many tax credits attractive is the fact that taxpayers can still benefit from them no matter what their tax liability is for a specific year. The wind and solar credit would be paired back dramatically since $63 million was claimed in 2014. It was already being phased out with the deadline of January 1, 2018. This credit covers 50% of installation costs for people who install solar panels on their houses up to $12,500. According to Governor Jindal's figures, the change to make the credit non-refundable would save the state $57 million this year. And as you can imagine, the proposal drew the ire of the state's renewable energy proponents. The head of the state's Association for Solar and Renewable Energy said the proposal would, quote, kill the solar industry in Louisiana, end quote, and it would cost the state at least 1,200 jobs. Meanwhile, the same budget proposal would also make the state historic tax credit non-refundable. Historically, in Louisiana, the legislature usually passes a budget that is close to what the governor proposes. So it'll be interesting to see what kind of budget ultimately wins the legislature's approval, which is expected in May or June. Stay tuned for more updates in future podcasts. In other news, a report out of North Carolina reveals that renewable energy incentives, particularly the state's Renewable Energy Investment Tax Credit, have actually been profitable for the state over the past eight years. That's because additional state and local taxes from renewables outpaced the amount of the tax credits allowed over that same time period. The study also found that the state benefited by adding nearly 45,000 full-time equivalent jobs in the renewable sector between 2007 and 2014. In that time frame, state renewable energy tax credits cost North Carolina approximately $182.6 million. However, renewable energy projects directly generated $186.1 million in revenue for the state, which is a net $3.5 million gain, and that doesn't include an estimated $97 million in secondary economic impact, according to the study. The report also showed that investment in renewable energy increased dramatically over the eight-year period. The amount invested in 2014 was 38 times the amount invested in 2007. And the state's so-called clean tech sector 
grossed $4.8 billion in 2014. This is particularly significant because North Carolina's Renewable Energy Investment Tax Credit is scheduled to expire at the end of this year. The study was prepared by RTI International for the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. It's called the Economic and Rate Impact Analysis of Clean Energy Development in North Carolina 2015 Update. We posted a copy of the report at www.energytaxcredits.com, and we'd appreciate any comments. Send them to cpas at novaco.com. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. I invite you to join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. This is Michael Novogratik. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived discussions are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. Novogratik and Company, LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.